0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. This is the second part of the interview with Dr. Mercola done right after he got off stage at the sixth annual biohacking conference, which was held down in Beverly Hills. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD risk free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 Qualia NAD. Plus. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. We are now going to talk about some of the other things he shared with the audience on stage. Dr. Mercola, welcome back to the show. Hey,
2: great to continue with you, Dave.
1: Let's talk about the other things that you shared with the audience. People were just abuzz with all the stuff you talked about, especially during your breakout session at the conference. Yeah. But what else was on your main stage presentation that we haven't talked about on the show so far?
2: Well, before I answer that, I just, uh, if you haven't listened to episode one, please do because I had some comments about how I felt about what you did with the conference. And, you know, just so listen to that if you haven't. But, but extending the conversation, uh, we all know that not eating for a few hours before bedtime is a good strategy. Uh, I, I think there's very few people who will dispute that, at least rational people. But I never really understood. Why that was so? I mean, obviously, putting your gut at rest is a good idea. But what happens when you do, when you when the, when you eat close to bedtime? Well, I was doing some reading on one of my favorite new molecules, NADPH. Uh, that we talked about in the last episode that increases reduces oxidative stress, and it turns out that the one of the large the largest consumer of NADPH, like the largest consumer of NAD plus, is PARP activation. But the largest consumer of NADPH is making fatty acids. So if you are eating food before you go to bed, you're not gonna burn those calories, You just because you're not that active. So your body has to do something with them, it can't eliminate them magically through the air, so it has to store them, and it stores them as fat, and to produce fat, it's making fatty acids, so you're consuming NADPH, and you're lowering your NADPH levels, which is the last thing you wanna do in the middle of the night when you're regenerating and repairing. So it's just crazy to self-sabotage and eat before you go to bed, and that's that's one that's my belief is probably one of the primary reasons. I haven't had a chance to discuss this with some of the researchers, but I was actually right before the podcast. I realized I need to, to ping uh, Sanjana Panda and see what his thoughts are on that. But I'm pretty sure he's the top guy, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I interviewed him, the evidence is really clear: eating after dark is not a good strategy. What? Is less clear though is that if you're planning to go to bed at two a.m., yeah, uh, whether you whether it's okay to eat at ten. Like, is, is there a, oh, a yeah. window? It,
2: yeah, do you I, have a thought on that? No, I do. I think it's, you need that three. I think it's a minimum of three, ideally four. I do five or six hours before, so it's just when do, it, it's before you go to bed. So you yeah. know, if, if you've optimized your circadian rhythm, and I think you've changed since you had your stem cell makeover you're going to bed earlier, at least from what you shared on previous podcasts. So that's good, so it's just, it's dependent upon your personal bedtime.
1: So three or four hours before bedtime, and I gotta say, even if you are what uh, Michael Bruce, the the author of The Power of When, and a friend, uh, and a, a guest on the show. I mean, he talks about whether you're a wolf, uh, one of the, the people who stays up very late at night and was probably evolved to be the night shift to protect the tribe, or whether you're a lion, the people wake up at four in the morning ready to kill. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're somewhere in there. It's still ideal to eat before it's dark, uh, but there are other eating strategies. For instance, if you're working in the emergency room and you're going to stay up all night, or you're a student who's going to study till dawn you probably do want to eat because you're going to get some stimulating things from it, but you're not sleeping, so you're going to use those calories. But otherwise, even if it's going to be a 2 a.m. night and you're going to be writing till late in the evening, I would still say eat, eat before the sun goes down. Yeah. yeah. You tend to agree? Well,
2: yeah, I mean, ideally, I mean, I think it's, that's the prescription for optimized circadian rhythm. One of the things I almost always get perfect scores on on my Aura Ring or circadian rhythm, it's like it's 100% almost every time unless I'm traveling.
1: Oh, I got a I got a question for you. All right. So we both use an aura ring and uh okay, I, I'm i I'm making my very best. Uh anytime I talk about something where I've I've become enamored of it and uh like I'm an investor in aura, I've become an advisor yeah. to the command, I'm friends with Harper, he's been on the show. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I call that out not to brag, but just so you guys know I may have a bias. But with the aura ring, I have found that I'm getting it's very common to get an hour and a half of deep sleep, an hour and a half of, of REM sleep, even in six or seven hours of sleep. And sometimes I'll even get two hours of those, uh, which is better than I've ever had in, in life. Um, what's your average amount of time that you're sleeping, Dr. McCullough? And what are the typical amounts of REM and uh, and deep that you're getting?
2: Well, I'm a bit older than you, and uh, yeah. you know clearly, you know, and I'm certainly not expert in sleep, but I, I listen to a lot of people who are, like Matthew Walker, and it, it seems that the amount of deep sleep tends to decrease with you age, and it seems to be observa- observation. So I'm not as optimized as you. One of my goals, and I'm pretty sure I'll be able to hack it, would be to increase the deep sleep. There are many nights where I get zero deep sleep. Uh, but it would be, oh. yeah, but they've changed the algorithm. I don't know if you know this but people like me. I mean, they were, were nice. I was getting five, six hours of deep of REM sleep, but like, you know, not that much deep sleep. Uh, but they changed the algorithm. Now I'm not getting as much REM sleep. So that, you know, to, you, we're making assumptions here. They're using correlations between your yes. heart rate patterns and cause they're not measuring your EEG. It's, it's just an, no. an estimate. So it's, a, it's one of the best estimates we have now, but it's not an EEG assessment. And I think Walker is working on some companies that are doing EEGs. I tried the Dream, yeah. which is a little more accurate, but it is so cumbersome. And the company is just... It's
1: too you know, heavy, yeah.
2: It's terrible company. It really is.
1: Dream is a... It's an EEG head helmet, almost, that you sleep in. Yeah, yeah. So... so- I, there may be a hack for you. I just interviewed uh, Dan Gartenberg from Sonic Sleep. This is another yeah, company. You know, when I, I, find like, stuff, I like
2: that. I'm, it's, I'm, I haven't investigated it yet, but I've got okay. a tab opened up on my browser. to Try, look try
1: it on, on your phone. You'll have to put your phone in airplane mode or maybe run it through speakers from another oh, yeah. room so you don't get EMFs from it. No, no. But uh, I, especially when I'm traveling, I really notice an improvement in my deep sleep from it. That was why. I, this is another one of those. I'm an advisor and investor in that company, too, because I find yeah. cool stuff. I'm like, I have to help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So... It's it, it, that thing I think is very real and he's got a million dollars of NIH grants behind it So it's yeah. you know, he's a professor I think at Penn State or University of Pennsylvania somewhere uh, And you know, I'd say it's the real deal as far as I can tell I yeah, know I was sleep, intrigued.
2: It it's intrigued enough I just have not the time to to go forward with cool That was on my list of things to do But I've got an interesting biohack that you might be oh, and I'm, I'm sure you'd sure be interested I just it took a while It took me about a year to get it But I just actually had it installed just then completed the uh, Yesterday. <laughs> it's a float tank. So Oh, you
1: have a float tank. Oh, yeah, nice, I yeah. went downstairs too. I mean, you know that, of course, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, so it's magnesium sulfate, and that has seemed to help dramatically. Now this is a float tank constructed to do, it's structured water, and it's, and it's disinfected with ozone. Uh, but I, I believe this company has the potential to create a, a device that will put in nine to 10 parts per million of hydrogen concentration. So I could be soaking in hydrogen water. I mean, they haven't developed it yet, but I think they will. Dang,
1: I want, I want I, that.
2: I said everyone like us is going to want one of those things. I'll, I'll be the first to have it, though. Okay,
1: here's an interesting hack. Uh, I've I've been a little bit hesitant to try it on mine, but if you go to the back of a, a typical flow tank, you can control the temperature. And yeah, normally yeah. we keep it around ninety four, ninety five, about skin temperature. But if you wanted to do Uh, Some of the heat shock protein, kind of whole body hyperthermia, there's nothing that stops you from putting it at 104 and floating in there. It's going to be a little hot. It's going to raise your body temperature, but you can actually have a short-term fever, which is really good for getting down viruses, certain parasites, some slow-growing gram-negative bacteria that accumulate as you age. Uh, So I've been wanting to play around with it. The problem is I don't want to be alone in there uh, because if you end up having some sort of a heat shock issue, uh, you don't want to wake up in the morning uh, as a sous vide.
2: Absolutely. So that is a a good segue into heat shock proteins. So what? Yeah, let's talk about that. What do heat shock proteins do? Because you hear everyone bantering about, oh, and it's like every one of us is supposed to know what they do. Well, I sure the heck didn't, so I had to look it up. So what do you think they do? Um, Heat shock proteins
1: um, are things, as far as I understand it, and I haven't dug in on some of this stuff other than looking at like the beneficial effects of sauna and hot cold exposure, um, but certain proteins in your body will denature. Um, even at relatively small increases of this, and denaturing of a protein is when the protein changes its shape in response to heat. Uh, so, as far as I understand, heat shock proteins are made when denaturing happens, but uh, they're they're as repair systems. But there's probably a lot I don't know because, like you, I am not yeah. an expert in them.
2: No, no, and that was more than my understanding. But when I looked into it, and I've done I've done quite a bit of review on it, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert. I believe, but I think I understand it at a deeper level. It's actually, it's not denaturing, it's actually misfolding. And what, okay, shocked, yeah, right. what shocked the heck out of me, and I didn't, but it's I've seen it from multiple sources now, that 30% of the proteins that you make, right out of the box, right out of the box, 30% of them are misfolded. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think you did. Not, not many people know that. So 30% are misfolded. and the mechanism your body has to repair that damage is heat shock proteins. And actually, you'll appreciate this because heat shock proteins are actually a corollary to autophagy. So what happens is that the heat shock proteins goes into tries, tries to repair the damage to refold it. If there's so much damage that it can't refold it, it will tag it with a, with a substance called ubiquitin. And it polyubiquinates that molecule. And then it goes through the UPS, the ubiquitin protease, proteasome system, which actually degrades it and recycles the constituent elements. It's very similar to autophagy. It's a parallel course for autophagy. So the heat shock proteins and autophagy are really similar. I never knew that. But that's why it's so important to increase these heat shock proteins. And one of those other Nutrients I took during fasting, sulforaphane, not only does it increase NRF2 pathway, but it increases heat shock proteins and also an HDEC class 2 inhibitor. So, you know, these are the types of things that you want to do. So heat, and that's why I use the sauna as part of the keto fast program is, is uh, the sauna. I like the near infrared because I think you get the photobiomodulation with it, too. Uh, so I, I use that. Uh, and then the, you know you can combine it with cold thermogenesis for sure, but there's other stressors. Exercise probably increases heat shock proteins as of, as does even some oxidative uh, other oxidative stresses. So there's a lot of things that increase it, but I think heat is probably one of the most important ones. I
1: uh, I, I like that uh, that explanation. Essentially, come on in and repair stuff. Yeah. And, It's funny, what happens when you lift heavy? (laughs) The same thing. Absolutely. What happens when you use ozone therapy? Oh, here's a big spike in free radicals. I guess the mitochondria that that can't make protective antioxidants should die and be replaced by young ones that can. So all of these things are just extra stimulants that tell the body you need to be able to handle more more than you would if you were just lazy and sedentary and you weren't in a constantly cyclically changing environment. So heat shock proteins are yet another, uh, another way to do it. Uh, what's your take on the old Swedish technique that my wife's a fan of? You know, roll in the snow, getting in the sauna, rolling in the snow, getting in the yeah, sauna. Yeah, I,
2: I, I don't, I haven't seen any research published on it, but it seems to make sense because it's all about cycles, which kind of brings me back to one of the other elements of the benefits of partial fasting as opposed to like the fasting mimicking diet or water fasting, is that you can do it more frequently. Now, one of the cautions that those who should not partial fast or regular fast for certain would be anyone with an eating disorder, anyone who's underweight, or who is breastfeeding or pregnant, because pregnancy and, and breastfeeding are anabolic phases, and you don't want to compromise those at all. So, uh, assuming you you don't have any of those things, then you can you really want to activate autophagy and and uh, and it's best done by a fasting. Intermittent fasting can do it some, but it's a really only a mild increase. And you'll get, you can get close to maximum with the keto fast, partial fasting. But you can do that twice a week unless you go below your preset ideal body weight. In my case, it's about 180, 181. If I'm below one hundred eighty-one, I will not partial fast because I'll lose too much weight, and I want, I just don't want to lose weight. So. Um, so most of the times I can do it at least once a week. And, and if I'm at home when I'm not traveling, I could do it twice a week. Um, so that's a, another major benefit. You instead, so ideally you can get partial fasting autophagy benefits and then the refeed benefits, which is, which is according to Longhorn, I believe him, is most of the benefit from fasting occurs during the refeed, especially if you've in, integrated it with the, the, the strength training and growth hormone benefits. Uh, then you're going to do that over a hundred times a year. In no way are you going to be water fasting for 100 days a year unless you're uh, morbidly obese. Uh, you just can't. Your body can't support that. It'll, it'll make you very unhealthy. And or even fasting mimicking diet, you're not going to do it that much. Most people do it once a quarter, maybe a little bit more. So you get a lot more benefits by doing it. And, and collectively, you'll, you'll radically over increase the number of times that you can get it.
1: What's the lowest percentage body fat for men and women that you consider to be in the healthy range?
2: Well, that's a good question. You know, that really depends on your individual goals. But if it's pure health and it's not some type of competition, yeah, because you you know you can't health. dissociate that from because people have a lot of competitive goals and you know there some people would take a pill that would kill them in two years if they could be a world champion. So we have to separate those two out. Right. So,
1: right. So, for, so for people who just want to be healthy, not people who yeah, are fitness yeah. models or something.
2: I, I think for men. I really wouldn't go much below eight or ten percent. Probably for women, maybe fifteen to twenty, somewhere in there. Uh, and I have yeah. a yeah. I think it's probably the ranges. I mean, maybe you can go down to twelve for women. I wouldn't go much below. I think below twelve, you start losing your period. I, I think it,
1: it's also problematic for women because some women have big breasts and they're made out of fat, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know that they, they can change size as you as you lose your weight, but if you just genetically have more fat there, your percentage body fat's going to be higher than someone who's smaller. So the range has to be a, a bigger range for women. Uh, and then um, there's also the question of, of I think, age for women because of fertility. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are storing EPA and DHA on you know, the inside of their thighs and on their hips, and most of that gets used for their first baby. So if you're young and you know in the infertile years, you you probably should have some extra fat and it has a benefit there, um, so I I think it's much harder to say what it is for women, but for guys, what I've seen, below ten is probably not ideal for anti aging. Maybe eight, uh, but I, I mean I have I have one friend who's been on the show is it he showed me his scans. He's like a two point three percent or something, well. and I, like at that point your lungs can actually adhere because <laughs> there's no padding in there. Like your lungs can adhere to parts of your. Uh, uh, Parts of your rib cage or your fascia in there, and and actually like be torn, uh, and you know. But he feels great, he looks good, and he's in amazing shape. And I'm like, man, maybe you should eat more carbs or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's the whole thing. You know, it, it's very clear to me that it, you just cannot do. Well, you can, but I would not recommend it if your interest is health. Is to do chronic keto. It's a bad strategy. Yeah. you can do, you can do it to attain metabolic flexibility, and for some people, it might take a month, maybe even better part of a year. But once you got it, you do not want to be on a continuous. Your body needs carbohydrate on a regular basis. And in my case, I use a lot of healthy fruit. I, I, I've actually got a garden I think that's bigger than yours now. I've got, oh, wow. I'm growing mangoes. I'm, I'm harvesting a gallon of, of blueberries a day now for the, like the last few weeks. Uh, I've got a little blueberry farm. And uh, cherries and peaches and avocados. But you're eating those seasonally though. I
1: mean, you're in Florida where it's very sunny, so yeah, seasonal fruit I, I get it. It's it's that at least where I am, I'm much further north in Canada. So we have a, our blueberries haven't hit yet, but I'm going to be eating a ton of blueberries in summer when I get sunlight, but the rest of the time I I don't use fruit. I use prebiotics because Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, just, That works better. Use what is available. So especially if you can pick it off your property, that doesn't get much better than that. So yeah. uh, but it's but the, the key point here is that you're cycling in and out. Cycling in and out. Yeah. You just don't you, do, you don't want a fast Continuously, so you don't, certainly don't want to to stimulate them to work continuously. So you want to cycle between the both of them, and I think that's when you're going to optimize your health. And it's the frequency is based upon your specific body, and you got to learn to listen to your body. So uh, you know, sometimes it might even more than twice a week you want to do it, or sometimes it's once every two weeks. So there is no right or wrong. We're just offering guidelines in the book and and, and encouraging people to honor what their body's telling them and listen to that feedback and then apply it and see how it works because. You know, it's a a work in progress, and I I don't think anyone's really come up with the ultimate uh, research-backed solution to do this. I mean, we just have general generic principles to guide our strategies by. And
1: anyone who does do it is going to have to have a copy of your genetics, and they're going to have to have a copy of your gut bacteria, at least where they are now, and when you implement changes, three days later, you'll have different gut bacteria, and so... We will have predictability here. That's why those general principles that you're talking about, uh, you talk about them in keto fast and just on, on your website and stuff we're talking about, these matter, but this is the most important thing. If something works really well for your spouse or your friend, try it. But if it doesn't work well for you, it's not because you didn't do it right, unless you didn't do it right, it's because you're different, and you have different circadian rhythms, and you have different everything. So follow principles and tune for yourself. And, and that was the biggest mistake that I made you know, 20 years ago when I was working on, on this. Oh, this seems to work really well, but guess what? Most people aren't a six, four, formerly obese, <laughs> almost muscular guy, uh, and it, so all of that really matters. And, and so if for me to do the same thing that would work really well for one of my friends from South India, where they have a totally different uh, genetic heritage and a different diet that evolved over the course of tens of thousands of years, they might handle legumes better than I do, right and right. and that's okay and and it, neither one of us is right or wrong. and it's it's that mindset that i I think that you you carry well in your work and and you've evolved your diet substantially over time based on evidence and based on what works where did you start out from a, a nutritional perspective? Like when you started <laughs> Cola.com in 1997, just walk people listening how much you've well, changed. Because I'm really before, impressed by that.
2: Let's start before when I was in like grade school and I was having okay. margarine on white toast.
1: Yeah, me too. <laughs>
2: with headway, sprinkled with cinnamon sugar, you know? Yes. And then, then I, then I graduated to oatmeal or Quaker oats or something. And then, uh, that didn't get much better, was definitely low fat. I, my, my fat intake was so low, now I, admittedly I have a genetic defect for a hemolytic anemia called thalassemia, beta thalassemia. So my cholesterol levels are low, but I got my cholesterol down to 75, which is. That's bad. That, that's criminal, that's not bad, that is criminal. So, and it, you know, it, I didn't, it, it wasn't intentional, it was just an artifact of just following a low fat diet for me. So um, that was what, that was pre-med school, but in med school wasn't much different. I didn't really understand this until I was mentored by Rosedale in '95, and he helped me appreciate the Ron Rosedale, and a physician who's really popularized the insulin concept. So, and, and he was one of the first people advocating the importance of insulin because it was he pretty much discovered insulin resistance, and he called it Syndrome X, right? Yeah, no, no, Syndrome X is a different. Uh, a different author a, a metabolic syndrome
1: sorry metabolic syndrome that's what i'm thinking yeah. of yeah yeah uh,
2: and, and that was i think gerald raven who's uh,
1: okay got since, it I
2: confused the uh but no he he's popularized it, certainly in our community there's no question he was the leader in that and uh, you know i was i remember in a lecture hall with him with like 15 of us he was just te- explaining explaining how insulin worked and it j- changed my approach and really I, I started getting much better results in my practice clinically but, you know, then you just learn more and more. The recent stuff is lectin uh, lectin issues that that uh, was uh, prom, uh, promoted or wi- w- widely uh, spread by Gundry. Uh, yep.
1: And lectins were in the Bulletproof Diet, too, in, in yeah, 2014. No, you but were, they're like one of five big things in food. But, but they're an important one.
2: You were ahead of the curve, no question. But well before I appreciated it. And and now is it definitely part of any any strategy I would rec- recommend if anyone for an off view yeah. issue no question to remove the lectins, um, but uh, with respect to diet I think the the keto was like relatively recent four years ago or so and
1: uh, you you were also mostly raw and kind of veg- yeah, yeah. not vegetarian ish maybe is the way to describe it for a while I, I think you evolved, and I did too I was a raw vegan for a while yeah, right? yeah. I was like
2: more raw is was, better I was a raw vegan but. Uh, I, I did believe in raw foods, and I still eat a lot of raw foods, but, yeah. but uh, you know, it, not that, I mean, it's not exclusively raw foods. I think it's, it's, there's not, it's not a sin to cook, especially some of these vegetables, or, or to remove the lectins. It's, it's really important to do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it just evolves, and you learn, and then and I, I thought that regular continuous Tito was so good. I mean, it was the best diet out there, so you should do it continuously, and I learned, my body taught me otherwise, and I realized it had to be cyclical, and then, and then integration of the partial fasting, I think, is the newest revelation, and really, you know, I think, is such a magnificent strategy to optimize your health for people like us who really want to live to as long as we can, at least to 100, with having all of our functioning intact and not being frail, and having really good cognitive function, I think these are the strategies you've got to do. In addition to the one thing that I did talk about on, on, on the stage, uh, which is my book for next spring, which I'll probably be back on to discuss when we have a lot of details, oh, yeah. it, is the EMF. Because you know EMF, the biggest issue there, and I won't go into details, because we really wanted to finish this conversation on the fasting, but it's another source of oxidative stress. It's a massive source, and it's one that's surprisingly, almost universally overlooked by almost every researcher you can review the studies and they all talk about it but no one is talking about the oxidative stress the peroxy nitrate the carbonate free radicals they're just ignoring it and uh, I, i'm really going conf- to i'm interviewing david seclair in about two or three weeks and i'm going to definitely have that discussion with him and i'm going to see i'll bet but i'll bet he doesn't he's not aware of it it's not that he's foolish or anything he just doesn't know but it's a big issue you know, you can you can increase NAD all you want, but you've got to before you remediate the damages. We all know that prevention is better, so you don't want to have the damage to begin with.
1: I, I remember going back a long time in in Mountain View, California, at the I think it was called Red Rock Coffee. I don't know if it's still there. Um, I sat down with the guy who held the first patent on 802.11b, the first Wi-Fi patent. Wow! And at the time, he, he already was uh, you know senior researcher, had been, been working on this stuff for 20-plus years, and he said, well, I'm retired now, but I'm taking the million-dollar test equipment that we had used in the lab to look at what you know these Wi-Fi signals were doing, and I turned it around, and I pointed at humans, and he opened up his laptop, and he said, look at all the signals coming off of people. Like, isn't this amazing? I know there's health data in here. I think I'm going to be able to predict something. And I've lost touch with him a long time ago. I wish I'd I'd recalled his name, but this was 20 plus years ago. And that always stuck in my mind. Is like, you know, there's something going on here. And then you read Electromagnetism in Life and um, uh, Robert C. Becker's books and all. And you realize, okay, there is something going on here. There's a book from... In 1984 the head of the Karolinska Institute one of the top ten hospitals out there mm. wrote a book about electricity in the body and he wouldn't publish it until he retired he's like oh they're going to try and take my license for writing this and it's you know 800 pages of craziness so i've always i I believe that there's something here and it feels like your book may be one of the big factors in this is your next book in in making people just pay attention to it because it's absurd to think it doesn't matter this is a long lead up but Here's my big question for you. Do you think it's possible that we could build a communications infrastructure that used the right type of EMF that it was actually biologically neutral or even beneficial for life instead of harmful?
2: I'm pretty confident there is. It's just that there's no interest in this because of the perversion of the, the focus of the research from the wireless industry. I mean, it is absolutely in the, the exact opposite direction. But the first question, Step is really implementing things that we did early on. I mean, I when I started a a uh, a networking computer at our officers think is the early 90s. We ran Ethernet cable. Wireless yeah. didn't exist. All the all our computers internally were by Ethernet cable. We could do that in our home easily. So you I don't, do. need, yeah, you don't yeah. need wireless in your home. So that's a big part of it. The challenge to, to the more extensive challenge, especially with the introduction of five G and the satellite distribution of that, which is going to make it essentially available over the entire planet, and, and wireless frequencies don't just affect humans; they affect the, every form of life on the planet: animals, insects, birds, bees—you know, you name it—they're affected by it. So it's not just uh, humans that are going to be impaired; is we're really destroying our environment. So I don't know. There probably are some ways to remediate it, but it would require some really bright scientists to understand it. Certainly, part of the damage is due to the pulsing of the signal and the frequency. So, yeah, it's 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 not going to be done though. I mean, you know, big pharma and and vaccines are a big issue, but boy, I'll tell you, wireless is going to drop way after those things do.
1: You know, I. Maybe I'm, I'm hopeful about it, but I think there's a $500 billion plus business opportunity. Mm-hmm. The networking company that comes out with hard science that says use this networking protocol and people don't have this oxidative stress, there will there will be governments in small countries, probably like Norway or someone will start, or Finland or Sweden, uh, and they're just gonna say, you're not allowed to use this stuff that's like smoking, and maybe, Maybe there will be an insane amount of money, an insane enough amount of money yeah. that a very large company is going to say, you know, if we can be the one to do this, all the other guys are going to have to get our yeah. patents. So come on, engineering friends listening. I know there's a lot of you out there. Yeah. Somebody get on this.
2: Yeah, well, there's there's certainly enough income in it because the tobacco industry, pharma industry, and wireless are all about the same. We're all over a trillion dollars in revenues every year. Uh, so the revenues are there. I And you're more of an electric, electrical electrical or electronic expert than I am certainly, but I would think that the wireless signal is one issue, but the more challenging one is going to be the the, the, the cell phone radiation, which is a different st- structure completely, I believe. Because I, I, yeah. I think remediating the wireless isn't that much of a challenge because you can obviously get rid of it. I think that's one of the biggest crimes we have is the introduction of wireless radiation in the classrooms. I mean, it is of any... Population that is most at risk for this damage from this it is our kids. They have thinner skulls. The, their brains have more concentrations of water, higher concentrations, so they absorb this radiation more easily. And they're, they're in the developmental stages of their brains, so they're more susceptible to the damage. And we are just decimating our youth by, you know, I mean, if, even if we have our home as a as a safe haven. We send them to schools where they're getting bombarded with wireless. I mean, it is worse. There's not a micro doubt in my mind, Dave. It is worse. The situation in classrooms end if every kid in the kid in that classroom was smoking. And we, wow. we we would we would just scream in horror if that was to happen now.
1: Yeah, you know, people just they also you look at the typical school lunch and it's deep fried yeah. God knows what. And I'll tell you, the science is really clear on that. Eating fried stuff. Creates 24 hours of oxidative stress in the body, and smoking a cigarette is only about 48 hours. So, the fact that people aren't up in arms over the fact that we're feeding garbage to our kids, that seems like a low hanging fruit, even compared to putting an Ethernet jack on the desk, which is what we do at my house.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, No, I I couldn't agree more, you know, especially, and and that you nailed it. It, it, To me, the worst food you could possibly eat is a damaged oil, which is typically processed, industrially processed, and then heated. You have these cyclic poly these cyclic aldehydes and trans fats and and I mean that these these bad fats get embedded in your cell membranes and they the the consequences are much longer than having sugar which is like short term typically and it maybe increases your insulin level but it's gone it doesn't stick in your cell membranes for, for days or weeks.
1: It's a really uh, it's just interesting perspective when you know we can talk about that. and There's a lot of people listening right now and. I know a lot of you are saying I'm going to go to the restaurant but you know they have those really good deep fried brussels sprouts or I like the calamari <laughs> or whatever but like here's the deal you can train yourself to just look at that and have a little thing that says not food so if they set you know a wicker placemat on the table you wouldn't want to eat it and if they set the fried calamari down it's not that oh I really want to eat it but I'm a good person I'm not going to you can literally train yourself like you know the interest isn't there I want to eat the stuff that tastes good and makes me feel good because it's possible to do it and, and that that just reduces pain in your life a lot versus walking around wanting the fried stuff all the time. You just realize once you don't ever eat it at all for a while, you have a bite of it, it tastes bad. It's not even as good as you thought it was.
2: Yeah, there could be that element. But to me, once you're convicted like we both are and you know that at a molecular basis what it's doing to your body, your aversion to it is beyond strong. It's like far worse than electric shock. And so much so that you, when you see someone eating it, you almost want to scream and warn them the damage and the danger they're doing to their body, but obviously you have to be socially collect. But you know, especially, I mean, if, if it's a stranger, it's not a big issue. You can't be screaming, you know. But but if it's someone you know and care for, you just oh, I mean, I just get so frustrated with them seeing this happen.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I I just realized I'm just going to keep doing what I do, and I only talk about it now when uh, when people ask.
2: Yeah, but otherwise, that's probably the safest strategy. But you know, back to the EMF. You know, my book's not going to be out until next spring. And uh, so I hate to talk about something and, you know, let inform people of the danger without giving them some resource. And before my book is published, the best resource out there, I'm pretty convinced, is the non-tinfoil cat guide to EMF. It's written by – have you interviewed Nick?
1: I haven't, I've chatted with him a few times.
2: Okay, yeah, Nicholas Penalt, he's, he's a good guy, kind of hard to understand because he's French, got that thick French-Canadian accent, but uh, his books and his work is really good. He really covers it very well, and it's written in a, a very easy-to-understand language, so it's simple, because it he'll walk you step-by-step on the on the strategies you need to remediate and, and protect your, yourself and your family.
1: If you're listening to this thing and, and you're saying, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed, these guys are, are doing all this crazy stuff, just keep in mind, Our job is to find all the things and stack rank them in order of importance on what they're doing to your health Uh, and then figure out the strategies that are least annoying (laughs) to prevent the harm or to cause more good. And and that's just a very basic uh, summary of the thinking process that's gone through 20, 30, 40, 50 years of of just careful analysis because there are some things that, that you could do that might cost a hundred thousand dollars and take two years to do that might give you a little bit of a benefit but a no one's going to do it because of the time and the money and all that so knowing that it's possible is cool uh, but knowing why that might work and what could you do in five minutes and two bucks that gets you a little bit of the way there that's the stuff that i i feel motivated to share and on the the emf stuff i'm damn grateful to have a cell phone it is really useful and has changed the world changed my life and You know, I'm, I I wouldn't want to change having one, but I would like to have all those amazing benefits with the least possible harm and maybe even with some benefits and like, that's the direction and that's the way to think about it. So don't let perfectionism and fear come into your mind from hearing what we're talking about. Uh, This is playful curiosity and a desire to do all this. And here's my question for you, Uh, Joe, do you do everything that we talk about now consistently?
2: Well, nothing's a hundred percent, but pretty close (laughs) to it, pretty close to it. Yeah, you're pretty close, but you're still not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but you know, like having french fries? No, I'd never have a french fry. That would be like suicide for me, you know? Yeah, Yeah, and like you know you wouldn't die if you ate it, but
1: you know you'd be a no. little bit closer to dying, and, and so to consciously take a choice, you're like, you know, there's a better one, right. uh, especially when you don't have fear of starvation. Right. And, and it's funny.
2: And I don't think it's orthorexia. I mean, it could. You could. You yeah. people may think orthorexia, or the equivalent for lifestyle of orthorexia, but I don't think so.
1: No, and, and it's also, orthorexia, is, is it, there's a fear involved and, and there's a like a, a phobia where you say, I, I can't do it. And here, I'm choosing not to do it because I don't like how I feel when I do it. And and that's right. a very different awareness uh, perspective. And also, I can recall a few times in the past 10 years when I actually put the phone up to my head when it was on and it was usually for me to say, hold on a second, I'm getting my headset." Uh, but people probably saw me at the, the biohacking conference walking around with the phone up to my head I, I'm gonna just disclose a trick that I do which I probably shouldn't I put the phone in airplane <laughs> mode and I stick it up to my head So people think I'm on the phone so I can actually get from one end of the conference to the other so I can be on stage on time Otherwise everyone wants to stop me and tell me about all the cool stuff So that's just a signal that hey, I'm not available, but I'm not cooking my head because I don't want the phone I, I've, I've never had a conversation with the phone by my head in the last I gotta say probably last 10 plus years because it's just not worth it. But I also spent 10 years driving with the phone up to my head because we did it back then because I didn't know any better. But you know, bottom line is it, perfection's not required. Don't be afraid if you do something wrong, but next time just work on doing it better. So yeah. a little bit of preaching there, but I just, I don't want to create
2: fear. No, no, that, that, that's a good frame. I appreciate you sharing that, Dave.
1: Because yeah, I've fallen into that trap where like we live in a blue lit, microwaved world and, you know, it's the end of the world and, you know, you get this uh, apocalyptic sort of hopeless mm-hmm. yeah, sort of yeah. thing. That's toxic, man. Just that mindset yeah, yeah. alone raises cortisol and it's just. No,
2: no, no, no question. But, yeah, you know, you do, I think that to emphasize the importance that your body, a few things. One is that your body is designed to stay healthy. If you give it the things it wants, it needs and requires and avoid the things that are toxic to it, you, you, you're, you have no other path. You, you just move towards health and away from disease. But part of that is this in conventional society is to create that safe haven at night, especially in your bedroom, so that you can have this repair time to recover from the damage you've done to yourself during the daytime.
1: Yeah, it, uh, uh, it, it just makes sense. That's, that's how to do it. All right, let's talk about one more big set of knowledge uh, that you can share uh, with listeners before we get to the end of the show. Mm -hmm. And that's let's compare notes on lab testing. Uh, I'm working on my next book My anti-aging book comes out in September I'm
2: looking forward to reviewing that my my that book after EMF will be anti-aging But it won't won't come out until 21 or 22 and it it actually will probably be three or four books because it's already like 600 pages
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing what's out there and and it's like how do you choose? What's worth it? And there's some some things uh, around water for instance you could spend thousands of dollars a month and get a 5% benefit. I'm like, I'm, I'm not putting that in there. But there are other things uh, you know, that maybe people haven't heard about. Like, oh, if rats live 30% longer on that, pretty sure that that's worth it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So maybe I'll try that. Yeah. All right, so lab tests. Uh, what are your, your, let's say, top five or seven recommended lab tests for people listening? So you're listening and say, I haven't really quantified myself. What should I be paying attention to?
2: Well, there's no question of mine, the absolute number one, and I feel very proud, if I can be so egotistical, for having catalyzed the interest in conventional medicine about this about 20 years ago, was vitamin D. Yeah, yeah, you, know, you really did that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get that credit for it, but that's fine, yeah, it, I, I'm just in for the end result, but I was really the early adopter in spreading that message. Uh, and uh, so vitamin D now that, if it's low ideally it means you go outside and get sun exposure it means you don't swallow a capsule I haven't swallowed a vitamin D capsule in, t- in 10 years over 10 years and I still my levels are still 70 nanograms or 60 to 70 Man,
1: You've got good genetics. I cannot keep my levels up from sun without also taking supplements, but I, I did a, some genetic analysis that showed that I I pretty much, even though I have white skin, I probably have the genes of a Pacific Islander or something, uh. I need a lot of sun <laughs> to get some vitamin D.
2: Well, it's hard to get at where you're at. Yeah. You're in the lab, You know, I, I have the opportunity, I get to, ch- to go outside of my home, ride my bike for about five minutes, I'm on the beach and I'm walking for an hour doing my reading. So, yeah. th- if you were in that environment, I think you would optimize your vitamin D pretty rapidly. That yeah, if be, I was in I Florida,
1: it'd, it'd be different. I, I, I'd try to do the same thing, and I just walk in a rainstorm. And yeah, it's not,
2: it's not gonna work. Your, your, <laughs> your latitude is too far north. So, uh, so that would be the first one. Uh, I, I'm, uh, your blood sugar levels are really important, too. And you can- Before, be, before uh, we
1: go on from D3 to get to the sugar one, uh, no. what about no. vitamin A and vitamin K2? Uh, it, it seems like those are synergistic; they they work together. Do you test for all three or just D three?
2: Well, K two is really important, and it works synergistically with vitamin D. In fact, many of the side effects or symptoms of deficiency are pretty similar, and certainly the benefits are almost are really comparable. But K two cannot be measured directly, as the best of my knowledge. You can measure it indirectly through osteocalcin levels, yeah. Uh, but you can't really measure K two directly. There's no commercial assay that I'm aware of for it. And by, yeah, I think and, it, it, you're right on that. Yeah. Yeah. So vitamin A uh, or retinol is is useful. I don't, you know, a lot of, I think if, I don't bother with it because if I just eat more of a paleo type diet where I'm getting regular vitamin A sources, I have raw grass fed better nearly every day. Uh, and I don't go out of my way. I mean, if you're taking organ meat, it'd be even better like liver. I don't, I don't tend to eat liver. I don't particularly care for it, but, but I do, you know, so I, I, I don't take that vitamin. I, I don't. I, I don't typically screen for that.
1: You don't screen for either one of them, so yeah. just straight up D three is what you go for. All right.
2: Yeah, because that's your biggest bang. I mean, most. I mean, that is such a profoundly crucial and vital nutrient, and it's just a criminal not to know what your level is.
1: Okay. Yeah. So number one is D three. Now, what do you do for blood sugar?
2: Well, you can measure that yourself. Yep. You know, easily, uh, and ideally, you'd like to get it below ninety. Now you know just like ketones, the higher the better. Well, blood sugar, the lower the better. Not necessarily. I think that probably the optimum for a blood sugar is somewhere between eighty and ninety, maybe mid eighties, maybe low eighties, somewhere around there. I mean, it's not that the seventies is terrible, but it may, it may not be optimal.
1: Yeah, but below eighty-seven is what the Life Extension Foundation has uh, has advocated for for at least twenty years as a fasting blood sugar. Yeah, and it's you know it's ten dollars or twenty dollars for a meter. It's very easy to get that number. So you recommend people test that.
2: Yeah, you can get the bare bare contour, I think it's $7, and the, the strips are like 25 cents, and you might even get 10 free when you buy it for seven bucks. I mean, it's pretty, it's basically free. Uh, then as an extension of that, you can do insulin, and if you're really were curious, you can be, get a book by the now deceased Joseph Kraft, who wrote a book on diabetes, and in that book is a, a, a series of diagrams and illustrations that tells you, explains how to do the analysis. So you can do an oral glucose tolerance test where they give you a 70 gram glucose load, and then sequentially measure your glucose and insulin levels between uh, uh, you know, like 30 minutes, one hour, two, three, four hours, and based on the rise and fall of that, you will be able to determine if you're insulin resistant, because 85% of the population is insulin resistant, so it would be nice to know. I mean, it's it's not impar- imperative, because if you're able to generate ketones, you're probably not insulin resistant, so it's, you know, you can just measure your ketones as, as an alternative to that. Just to determine you're metabolically flexible and continue to be, because you know you can go off the the wagon and you know not be metabolically flexible anymore. It's possible. I like I like ferritin. had recommended it for a long time to measure your iron levels. But one of the other cool people I met at your event was Joe Cohen, who I I don't know if you know of him, but he runs the yeah, I know self decode or self tact, and yep. so I was able to meet him. You know he saw he sought me out specifically. He went to the event this your event to see me. And uh, he changed my mind on ferritin. Uh, And I actually had just a phone call with him for about an hour last week. And I used to think it should be below 40 nanograms per deciliter. But I think, you know, or similar to the levels of vitamin D, which we didn't say the optimum. It should be over at least 40. It should not be lower than 40 if you get your number back. And ideally, I think between 60 and 80 is a sweet spot for the the vitamin D or or, uh, one high, one 25-hydroxy-D levels is the actual name of the test. And there probably is some benefit to measuring the active form of vitamin D2, um, mm-hmm. which is 125-dihydroxy-D, and I forget. There's another name for it. I just forgot the name. Bob Miller's uh, uh, associate, uh, Emily Gibler, was just giving me some insights on that recently, the value of measuring that. I'd, I'd always discounted in the past, but the, you know, I'm going to start looking at that. But
1: It turns out there's a, there's a bacterial thing that can happen, um, that affects your ability to create active vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really interesting paper that came out about that last year saying that there there might be something going on, yeah. either microbiome or infectious, uh, that's affecting what's called VDR, vitamin D receptors. Um, so that could be why measuring the active form is good. And they found people with more bacteria had less activation of vitamin D and found pretty strong correlation. So, yeah. so basically, yeah. what's your D3 and is it active would be really good. Yeah, got so a ferritin test under forty.
2: That's what I thought until I talked to Joe, and you know, and I was basing it on a number of things uh, that uh, typically people who donate their blood a few times a year tend to die less from heart disease and cancer, and that may be one of the reasons why postmenopausal women have less heart disease because they they have their much monthly menstrual cycle, then they they dump a lot of the iron. But it may be that the sweet spot for ferritin might be between 100 and 150. And based on that a conversation, we've reviewed a lot of studies. And, I'm, and I haven't had time to go and independently review it because I'm just busy. But it might be between 100 and 100, 150. And I actually, I've started eating red meat again as a result of that. Because heme iron is the best way to increase your ferritin. Because I had gotten my ferritin down to 25, and I think that was too low. So Yeah, it can be too low.
1: Yeah. You don't want to be anemic.
2: No, well, it's hard for me to tell because I have this beta thalassemia, which makes it virtually impossible to diagnose the anemia because of the confusing impact it has on your red cell indices. Mm. Uh, yeah, because I, you know, I, I, I am 100% every single time blood test anemic because of the thalassemia. There's no way around it. unless I, Well, that's not true. Some of the gene editing techniques from Cas9 could do it, but you know, I might be a candidate for that sometime in the future. I don't know. Uh,
1: <laughs> All right, so give me two more tests. We got ferritin, insulin, blood sugar, and D3. What else?
2: Well, as an extension of the ferritin, you could measure GGT. That's a liver enzyme, gamma glutamyl peptidase. And ideally in men, it should be about 15 or 16. And in women, it should be below 10. And if you have severe oxidative stress, that will go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's... Um, a-
1: I, uh, okay, so to look at oxidative stress, I'm surprised thyroid's not in here for, for the average person.
2: I, I just, I mean, you could test for it, but it gets to be complex and to help people understand and debug it, and you know, it's like a whole two or three podcasts by itself to explain. Yeah, it. yeah, understanding
1: T3R, T3, and d
2: 4 And it's not something I monitor on myself every day, all the time. Because you know, is it, my, it is or it's not? It's not, I like never.
1: Yeah, for daily monitoring, I'm, I'm just thinking a lot of people haven't gone into the daily or weekly or monthly sort of thing, uh, but subclinical hypothyroidism is just so common and, and even a very slight yeah. decline in thyroid as you age increases all cause mortality especially on the cardiovascular yeah. front so it, it i almost feel like it like if you're over 60 you should be taking you know a, a quarter grain of natural thyroid because you'll probably live longer
2: well i wouldn't go that far i so i'm over 60 and i don't take a quarter grain but yeah I, but you're I, also
1: exceptionally healthy for your age I, too
2: i wouldn't i would take iodine do take iodine every yeah day.
1: yeah You know, so that's... Uh, Iodine and tyrosine might be enough by themselves, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, and not having any autoimmune issues, you know, addressing that. So, and part of it is vitamin D. So, but I think you're right. Integrating a TSH would be a simple thyroid screen if you want to keep the cost low. And the traditional standards for normal would be above five. The higher the TSH, it's a negative feedback loop hormone. So, the higher it is, the worse your hypothyroidism. But that's probably the wrong number. It's probably like 1.5. Anything above 1.5 yeah. is potentially problematic. Agreed. Yeah, so that would be a good one to screen for. And I mean, you could do a chem panel profile is it just a general screen in CBC. I do what those every month just to make sure that I'm, because I, I, I test my blood every month, every month. Uh, and I, I measure, I, here's, here's what I think everyone should look at that I, I neglected would be, it, it's a general screen for inflammation, which is a high sensitivity CRP.
1: Yes, I, that's on my
2: short list for sure. Yeah, so, and ideally the lower the better on that one. And ideally you'd like to get it down to 0.2. Sometimes, now if you've got a cold or a cough or you're recovering from something. Or
1: you just lifted.
2: <laughs> yeah, or you just lifted, it that will go up. That's another good point, thanks for that question. Because I learned that lesson. Your insulin level, will, everything goes up. Do not, do your blood work before your exercise, not after.
1: <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, I, I had this weird thing, this is going back a, a while, and I was really experimenting with cold therapy, and I I had kept my HSCRP levels exceptionally low for, for the last couple of years before that, and then I went to sleep with some ice packs on accidentally, and I got first-degree ice burns on 15% of my body. And oh, yeah. two weeks later, I did my panels, and my HSCRP was just through the roof, and it's because I had you know, pretty substantial systemic inflammation from the ice, uh, and, uh, it was kind of, kind of scary until I realized the correlation there. So, yeah, if, if you have a one time thing there, it's a problem. Um, I usually tell people if you're going to do inflammation, which is the underlying cause of almost everything, even low vitamin D is going to reflect an inflammation. So, HSCRP is a top one for me. And I look at homocysteine, which is a substantial yeah. cause of inflammation uh, for people as well.
2: A, a little more expensive to test on a monthly basis. That's one of the pricier ones, actually. Yeah,
1: I, I guess I should qualify if you're gonna do your annual thing because yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, a monthly homocysteine is expensive, but if you've never had a lab test, you wanna know no. if yeah, there's yeah, a absolutely.
2: problem. I couldn't agree more, but just you know, the, the monthlies would not be homocysteine.
1: It won't change that much monthly anyway. You do that twice a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the other one is LPPLA2, which is expensive, but if, yeah. if anything you're doing, whether it's lectins, metals, Lack of vitamin D three, excess calcium doesn't matter. If you have damage to the lining of arteries, LPPLA two goes up because it's an enzyme that's released from damage in the arteries. So I look at that as one of those important but expensive tests. Yeah, yeah. Um, thoughts on whether that's worth doing? If you've never done any of well, that oh, stuff,
2: I think it's fine. I would. I no no problems with that at all. I mean you def, that's I mean it's, it's certainly better than doing total cholesterol, which is close to worthless. I mean, it's absolutely close to total cholesterol. You can do ratios and stuff, but I yeah. I've interviewed Malcolm Kendrick for his new book, and boy, he is just—I mean, it is not cholesterol. I mean, he 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 described ten patients to me with cholesterols for over six hundred to, to nine to nine hundred that were like in their sixties or to nineties and had no evidence of heart disease, none.
1: You know, there's familial hypercholesterolemia,
2: which I thought was an indication for statins, but it's not. Absolutely not.
1: Uh, one one of my good friends, uh, I've I've worked with him a lot on it, and he's gone around to some of the top experts in the field, and privately most of the physicians working on this will say, you know, we just don't know, but it doesn't appear that this is going to be harmful for you, and and we do know people live longer when they have higher total cholesterol. Um, it's correlated with longevity, and they handle toxins better. So I, I kind of think it might be a superpower if you have that, but there's probably some cardiologists listening going, Dave, you're a total jerk, because I said that, I, I don't know. But but and having it, gone really deep on that, I'm pretty sure that at least in some of those cases, it's completely not harmful. And if it is harmful, you should see it in your LPPLA2 and your HSCRP. Like, like if it's a problem, show me the next step, which is inflammation.
2: Yeah, and there may be these people's justification for the, the their encouragement of the use of statins is that they do provide some benefit, but virtually, uh, uh, I'm absolutely certain, that any benefit biologically they provide is not related to lowering cholesterol. It does other things. It, it activates the NRF2 pathway. I don't know if you knew that. It increases, oh, nitri- cool. it increases nitric oxide. So it does some beneficial things, but there's so much less dangerous and more effective and certainly costless, less costly ways to do that than to take a statin drug. I mean, that's the last thing you'd want to take. I, I don't think there's any indication ever to take a statin drug. And one out of four adults over 40 in America are taking them.
1: Sounds like a good marketing deal to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dr. Mercola, I've got one more question for you. It's my new question on the show. You remember my last one, probably three most important pieces of advice that sure. was the basis for Game Changers. My new one is because uh, my next book on anti-aging. How long do you think you can live? And how long do you want to live?
2: Well, I was waiting for that question, Dave, because I've given it a lot <laughs> of thought and you've been a real inspiration to me to to, mo- to motivate me in the right direction, but. Uh, I'm pretty confident that I'll live to at least 100, but not just at least 100 You know, in, in, any, in, a speci- in a specific way. Having basically, my hope, and I believe it's fully possible, is to have all the function I have right now, if not more, both in mobility, uh, lack of pain, cognitive function, and, and lack of frailty, and muscle strength. So that's my goal. And the, the primary goal to do that is because I believe pretty strongly that in the next 30 years or so, we're going to have access to technologies, which will bridge us to, to your goal of 180. And yeah. I, and I've met some interesting individuals that give me great confidence that this, is, that this may be even much sooner than the next 30 years. It could it's be, happening. The, it could be in the next few years. And, and I know you've done your stem cell makeover, and, and I'm sure that provided some benefits. I'm not a big fan of stem cells for a number of reasons, because it's DNA that you're putting in your body. The exosomes are much more favorable, they're more.
1: But what, what I'm talking about, these are my own stem cells.
2: No, I get it, I get yeah. it. Yeah, if you're gonna do a stem cells, it should be autologous. But then you're still, you're draining your own stem cell sores, you're either you know, going in invasively and taking your adipose tissue yeah. up from your bone marrow, and bone marrow is, in, is not an unpainful procedure. So, exosomes I like better, because there's no DNA involved. It's, but still, I think there's levels that are beyond that. And an order or two of magnitude. More oh yeah. Yeah, so there, I mean, you know about the the uh, the Horvath clock, right? The DNA methylation clock. Yeah. So Horvath and another guy. Uh, actually, I'm working with a guy now who's pretty good friends with Steve Horvath, uh, and thinks, and Horvath thinks this guy's got one of the best shots at figuring this out because that's probably the best genetic or genetic marker that we have of how old you are is your DNA methylation methylation clock better than Telomere tel- tel- Telomere length which is so flawed with inaccuracies it's it's ridiculous and so i think these strategies exist and you know and we're talking about cha- you've got to you know in 2012 there's a the, the Nobel prize was awarded to Yamanaka are you familiar with that that Nobel uh,
1: i don't remember the guy's name okay. what was it for
2: it was it was an act set of activate he found a, a gene set that were activation factors that when they were implemented and inserted into cells they essentially reset the biological clock to zero.
1: Ooh, I, I gotta get me some of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. I'm it, blending
1: I, that into my coffee tomorrow.
2: Yeah, yeah, well no, no, <laughs> this, this, this is not model, very sophisticated gene editing technique. Of course,
1: of course. <laughs> okay, so,
2: but uh, one of the researchers I'm working with is actually, uh, it, it works out of George Church's lab, who's a professor of genetics yeah. at Harvard, and actually, I think he's one of the co-inventors of the CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9 technology. I think so, yeah. So you know, so using these gene editing techniques to insert these activation factors into uh, uh, hematopoietic stem cells to reset your stem cell back to aging zero. So even though you're 70 years old, you can get stem cells reset down to zero.
1: In fact, I uh, I I wrote about this in uh, in my upcoming book. Oh, uh, you did. That was why the the name was there, and. I mean there you can already get ones I'm just trying to remember they were doing some sort of interesting mm-hmm. they were reversing adult stem cells uh back so they could do whatever they wanted with them and turning them into n k cells, yeah uh, and then introducing those to cause a rapid reduction in the age of your immune system yeah. And it turns out you can culture your own NK cells and do something kind of similar. And I've actually done that, and I, I write that up in the book. So I, I took out my stem cells, cultured them in a lab, and put them back in.
2: Interesting. Well, you know, you mentioned a point that that I didn't appreciate until recently. But the, your immune system is enormously responsible for how long you're going to live. And in fact, it's an impaired immune system that takes most elderly people out. We're talking about the 90s, the hundred year old people. Yeah. Usually, they get an infection, and they're they're healthy and just full of vitality and they get an infection, they're dead like in two days. It's it, because of an, yeah. some type of impairment in their immune system. It seems to be the, the major reason that they, they've taken out.
1: It, it sucks because if you're going to make it to 90 or 100 in good health, it means you didn't have an overactive immune system when you're young because a highly yeah. active immune system is going to create a lot of tissue adhesions and a lot of essentially uh, cellular level scar tissue throughout the body that slows things down and makes you likely to die of a bunch of different amyloid plaque related things, not just mm-hmm. Alzheimer's and other kinds of plaques or sorry, other kinds of amyloids. So if you have a low to normal immune system you can live a long time but then you get taken out by bacteria if you have a high immune system when you're young you get much more of of the different causes of aging they they get made much worse so you have to be able to reverse that stuff Uh, but then when you're old how do you stimulate the immune system and there's some really cool peptide things uh, that i do that i think most old people should be doing uh, Mm. that I, i put in the book where you know can you can you get the thymus gland of a 20-year-old into a 100-year-old? Well, <laughs> you can get pretty close to it without having to transplant a thymus gland. So that seems like yeah, a big yeah.
2: deal to me. I couldn't agree more. You know, another issue I forget, neglected to mention that's partially related to this is the removal of uh, senescent cells. And, yes. You know, and I'm sure in your, in your book, you, you know, you, there's, there's eight strategies that most all anti-aging research, researchers agree on, and, and removal of senescent cells is one of them. And there are some senolytic therapies now. James Kirkland out of Mayo Clinic is one of the primary researchers, and he just published the first human trial earlier there this year. Uh, he used quercetin and the, the, the satinib. Uh, but fisetin probably works even better, I think. But you gotta use it, either you can either inject it or you can use the transmucosal route. So, you know, removal of senescent cells, and if you're gonna do that, the caution is, senolytic therapy is not something, you, you do it a lot less frequently than autophagy. Uh, probably only once oh, yeah. a month. You don't want to do it more yeah. than once a month.
1: Uh, that is definitely something uh, that I'm also writing about because uh, there are cheap ways to remove this, and I mean, quercetin one of the big ones. But yeah, you do it too much. Maybe you don't want to do that. So yeah. we're we're still in the early days of figuring out the right timing and all that. And I um, I got to ask you this. this: Isn't a normal part of my uh, my question at the end of the show? But you said only a
2: hundred, and no, no, what- no. That that was the bridge. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: 100 until you get the new tech that's going yeah, to get you yeah, up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I I'm believe hoping, that more. I'm All right.
2: hoping I have the new tech before. I, I don't know that I'd put a limit on it. No, it's interesting. Uh, there are in many animals that live hundreds of years old. I mean, whales yeah. and, you know, and and Yeah. I mean, so there doesn't appear to be any biological limit to, or need to die. I mean, it's not some biological law.
1: Yeah, it's built into our species, but I'll build that right out. It's okay yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think it's doable. <laughs> I think you're right. It is, it is doable. So, you know, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to hang around being frail and, and uh, demented, yeah. but I, I think it's possible to at least, I think your 180 is rational. You know, it's, and, and certainly not as uh, out there as Diamandis seven or eight hundred. But even that may not be irrational either. So. I, I love
1: Peter. And I hope that we're I hope we're hanging out when we're both, you know, in our 800s. Uh, <laughs> I, I really hope he's right.
2: And and I do put a little asterisk at
1: least 180. So
2: that's yeah. my floor. But I'll tell you, I, you know, you know, Peter better than I I don't know him at all, really. But oh, great. if great. If anyone who's got the strategy to do it, I think it's you, not him. I really do. Oh. I, I think I think you're more tied in to what's going to do it than Peter is. But I could be wrong. I mean, he's got Craig Venter relationship and he does a Human Longevity Institute. But I don't. I've never. If he does have the strategies, I've never heard him discuss it like you do.
1: You know, I, 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 I Peter, he's he's a dear friend, and and I I just love being around him because of, of his energy. Yeah, his true great love. Is space, space yeah, and yeah. It, he's he's part alien, and he, he just wants to yeah. go home uh, in, in the best obvious. possible sense I'm saying that uh, and so he also cares a lot about longevity But man, you know when you put you put one one thing where the thing that, that makes his eyes sparkle It's it's space and discovery and science and this yeah. is one of the many buckets that he plays in so
2: yeah But it's yeah, but it's he doesn't he doesn't have it nailed on like you until he gets your Strategies and I think you're you're really on top of this field you know, he's not going to get there because you, you just don't do this by wanting to. This is not a desire yeah. issue. This is you have to be pragmatic and implement these strategies or it's not going to work. And that's why I wrote Fat for Fuel. That's why I wrote keto fasting and the EMF. But because in my view, those are the foundational strategies that are absolutely prerequisite for you to get the base to do the next step.
1: Yeah, you, you got to dial those in. I I agree with you and I think there's the least known about EMFs uh, right now. I I know that there are risks, and I know some of the mitigation factors, but we're gonna know a lot more, uh, because even though the industry doesn't really want us to talk about that, there's enough people doing research um, that isn't paid for by industry all over the planet that look, it either is or it isn't, just like tobacco, just like asbestos, and here's the deal. There are benefits to asbestos. <laughs> there really are. Sure. It doesn't catch on fire. Yeah. yeah <laughs> for absolutely. one thing. Yeah. Right. So you can use it safely in, in some in some locations. Uh and it has to be encapsulated, but you have to know the risk and you have to choose a risk reward. And if you deny that there's a risk to anything, and it doesn't matter what it is, then you've become religious instead of scientific. So let's figure it out and uh, continue to be curious on every front on everything. And maybe we'll learn something we didn't know 20 years ago. And that that's the the progress of science in every discipline is based on curiosity. Couldn't agree more. All right, Dr. McCullough, thank you for being on two episodes of Bulletproof Radio. It's always uh, fascinating. I love getting to hang out in person like we did at the conference. And there's just, yeah. uh, there's so much cool stuff to learn. And, and thanks for your kind words.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and I look forward to connecting Later this year, when I'll be up mindshare with you, so
1: absolutely, that should be talk fun. with you soon. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. You should check out KetoFast uh, because Dr. Mercola knows what he's talking about. And if you didn't know that beforehand, now you know. Have a great day.
0: The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.